Welcome back to another episode. Last week we talked about the Prime Minister Clement Attlee's efforts to make America give us some atomic respect. During the war, of course, we had been partners in the Manhattan Project, but then America slammed the door shut on us. There would be no more atomic collaboration. And any hopes we had of overturning that decision were smashed by the discovery of the atomic spy Klaus Fuchs, a German, but one to whom we had granted citizenship, and who worked at Los Alamos as a member of the British team. So he gave us all a bad name. So we could no longer be atomic partners. But the Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, was compelled to fly over to Washington in 1850 to try and get some kind of certainty from America, from President Truman specifically, that they would still consult us before deciding to use the atomic bomb. We felt that we had the right to be consulted, given that we were now hosting some American atomic bombers. The best Atlee could get was a personal promise from Truman that America would certainly consult us as far as was practicable. And that's why I called last week's episode, Sorry We Missed You, because Truman's commitment was a bit meaningless, really. I see it as the equivalent of a delivery company popping round to deliver a parcel. You're not in, so they just shove a card to the door saying, Sorry we missed you. So they tried to get in touch, I suppose, but you weren't there, so tough luck. So Atlee came home with a, a bit of a, a weak and watery commitment, and the opposition leader, a certain Winston Churchill, was not satisfied. But a few months later, in October 1951, Conservatives won the general election and he was Prime Minister again. So could he fix it? Could he make America give us some atomic respect? Back in Downing Street, Winston Churchill wanted to get his old band back together. So he summoned two of his atomic advisors from his wartime administration, the two top guys. Professor Lindemann, later Viscount Cherwell, and John Anderson. More details on those two guys in my episode called John Anderson and the Missed Bus. So they were Churchill's top atomic advisers in the 1940s. They had been his key atomic men during the war, and now that he was back in Downing Street, he wanted them back in with him. But neither of them was keen. The professor was by now ensconced at Oxford, and was also struggling with various illnesses, and so wasn't exactly desperate to be back in the rough and tumble of government. But Churchill wouldn't take no for an answer, insisting, I must have Prof. He always called him by that nickname, Prof. So he came back to Downing Street with his mission to get an A-bomb for Britain. But Churchill had less luck in getting John Anderson to come back. By this point, Anderson was no longer an MP, but that wasn't a barrier to being in the cabinet, so what stops him? Well, Kevin Rain, in his book Churchill and the Bomb, says it was his wife. He writes that John Anderson said, very quietly, that he could not afford to return to politics. 
a quote here from the book, what he meant was that it was impossible to provide his wife, the trilling social climber, Becky Sharp personified, with the lifestyle she expected on a ministerial salary. But he had his professor back at least, the prof as he always called him. He had badgered him out of his comfy chair in Oxford, back to government. Away from the dreaming spires and straight into the smog of 1950s London. Now we all know that the 50s in Britain was a time of post-war austerity. Cuts had to be made, belts had to be tightened and rationing was still underway. Added to all of this was the huge financial burden of the Korean War. And when Churchill was given the economic truths when he was back in Downing Street, he said, Never in my life have I faced an ordeal of this kind. It was worse than 1940. So cuts had to be made. Of course, one of the costliest projects underway was Britain's quest to become an atomic power. But that couldn't simply be put aside, mainly because so much work had been done on it already. All the momentum was pushing Britain on to, very shortly, being able to carry out our first nuclear test. So the prof must have thought he had a relatively easy job. I just need to keep nudging this thing along in the direction it's already going. Plutonium for the first test should be ready by early 1952 and we'll be good to go. But despite all the signs pointing to success, the prof quickly found out that there were lots of forces in Whitehall dragging on Britain's atomic project. Mainly the killjoys at the Treasury and also at the Ministry of Supply. Everywhere was talk of austerity, shortages, misery, cuts, cuts, cuts. But the prof must have felt quite relaxed about fighting off all the Whitehall miseries because, after all, he had been personally headhunted by Churchill, brought back to government specifically to get Britain an atomic bomb. And he had the big man on side, so why worry? So, Professor Lindemann sat down and wrote a memo to Churchill in November 1951. And it said, We're almost ready for Britain's first atomic test. All we need is for you, the Prime Minister, to sign on the dotted line. Give us your approval that we can go ahead and that we will use Australia's Montebello Islands as the test ground. So he sent his memo off, and according to Graham Farmello's book, Churchill's Bomb... The reply left Lindemann stunned. Quoting from the book, Churchill wrote that he had never wished that England should start the manufacture of bombs, contradicting almost everything he had ever said on the subject. He now believed that Britain needed only to be an expert in the science of the bomb, not the weapons themselves. The art rather than the article, as he put it. He was sure, he said, that when he met Truman in a few weeks' time, the President would gladly hand over a reasonable share of the Americans' own nuclear weapons. And just to top it all, he then told the prof that there was no need to approve the nuclear test just now. Let's wait until I've spoken to Truman, he said. 
And then he went back to his favourite subject, which we discussed last week, the bloody Quebec Agreement. He wrote to the prof, When we produce the agreement and demand that it shall be published, we shall get very decent treatment. A quick reminder that the Quebec Agreement was an informal gentleman's agreement drawn up between Churchill and FDR, which said the US and UK would work together on nuclear issues, pooling their resources, sharing everything and being best buddies forever. It had no legal standing at all. And no one in the new Truman administration cared about it. Some of them didn't even know about it. But Churchill could not let it go. So, to the prof's horror, Churchill seemed to think that he just had to sail over to America, remind Truman about an old casual agreement he had made over brandy and cigars with his dead predecessor, and America would just hand over some nukes. <laughs> I can feel Professor Lindemann's horror still echoing down throughout the decades. And I bet he was also a bit indignant, thinking, you dragged me out of Oxford, upset my whole life for this. Churchill knew, everybody knew, that the US had passed the McMahon Act in 1946, which made it illegal to share America's atomic knowledge with a foreign power, with any foreign power, even Britain, an ally. So it was now illegal, it's as simple as that. But Kevin Rain says that Churchill thought that a lot of that was driven by America's suspicion of Britain's post-war Labour government, a bunch of socialists. Now that the sensible Conservatives are back in power, surely all their reserve would just melt away. And it would be an excellent money saver, given how straitened we were in Britain. Do we need to spend zillions building our own atomic bombs when America could just give us a few of hers? And, uh, to quote Kevin Rain again, were these bombs not Britain's atomic birthright, given how closely we had worked with America on the Manhattan Project? With these thoughts, it does seem that Churchill was stuck in the past, stuck back in the 1940s when he and FDR were the kings of the world and could decide it all between themselves. Prof replied to Churchill saying, quote, I beg you to accept the advice of the chiefs of staff, the foreign office and all the other departments concerned. And he told the PM that it was, quote, inconceivable that America would just hand over some atomic bombs. Kevin Rain says his reply accused Churchill of living in atomic wonderland. It is no longer the 1940s. The Quebec Agreement is worthless. And even if Truman wanted to give us a bunch of nukes, the McMahon Act exists. And one of the penalties for giving away America's atomic secrets was the death penalty. So, it was a case of, get real, Winston, you're in atomic wonderland. His letter to Churchill also said, quote, If we are unable to make the bombs ourselves and have to rely on the American army for this vital weapon, we shall sink to the rank of a second-class nation. Paper he wrote this on must have been smouldering. 
The prof concluded by asking again that Churchill give the go-ahead for Britain's first nuclear test in Australia. One long month later, Churchill gave his reply. It said, Okay, yes, go ahead, go ahead with the test. Although I <laughs> I can't help but imagine that that response was written in the style of a, of a sulky teenager, going, yes, okay, fine, whatever. So Britain's nuclear programme was back on track, and it was no thanks to Winston Churchill, it was thanks to Professor Lindemann, a German. Isn't history strange? Two months later, Churchill and the prof were off to Washington to meet Truman. Mary brings Winston Churchill into New York Harbor en route to Washington. A Coast Guard cutter sidles up to the liner to take ashore the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, and other British officials. They're here for what may be historic conferences with President Truman. To Floyd Bennett Field, New York, an auto whisks Mr. Churchill, who has a flair for hats. The President's plane, the Independence, is waiting for the British statesman, still vigorous at 77. But Graham from Mello's book says that Churchill did not have glorious success in Washington. He was sadly no longer in his prime. He was ageing now and he walked to the stoop and often had trouble hearing what was being said at the conference table. And one of his main hopes for the American trip, to arrange another Big Three summit with Stalin, was dismissed by Truman. And when it came to his hopes for re-establishing atomic partnership with America, the US newspapers were mildly scornful. The Capital Journal wrote, Churchill wants a lot more than he could possibly get. He wants the same kind of complete partnership with the United States on atomic energy that existed during World War II. But Churchill knows that is impossible unless Congress makes fundamental changes in the atomic energy laws. And Congress will not do it. But the newspapers did admit that the Prime Minister had three strong bargaining points. One, that Britain have given America air bases for their atomic bombers. Two, Britain is now very close to having its own atomic bomb. And three, Britain has recently made big advances in the peacetime use of atomic energy, and they could maybe share some of that knowledge with America. So even if Churchill's trip to Washington wasn't a stunning success, there was some progress on the nuclear issue. The issue of who gets to press the button if the bombs are to be launched from British soil. He managed to get a bit more clarity on this from the Americans than Clement Attlee had. He got them to publicly declare that any action involving British air bases would be a joint decision. The statement said, Under arrangements made for the common defence, the US has the use of certain bases in the United Kingdom. We reaffirm the understanding that the use of these bases in an emergency would be a matter for joint decision by His Majesty's government and the US government in the light of circumstances prevailing at the time. Now you'll notice that that statement didn't use the words 
atomic or nuclear. The Daily Telegraph said that the reason for that emission was, quote, The United States has always held that to pick out atomic weapons as more destructive and more wicked than others is to play into the hands of Soviet propagandists and blur the really immoral action, the launching of aggressive war. So the results Churchill came home with, the commitment to it being a joint decision, that was slightly better than Attlee's previous effort, which had just the flimsy, quote, desire to keep the Prime Minister at all times informed of developments which might bring a change to the situation. Now we had the nice phrase, joint decision, although it was tempered by the addition of in the light of circumstances prevailing at the time, which I suppose could be twisted into covering America for any kind of behaviour. Peter Hennessy, in his brilliant book Never Again, reminds us that the guarantee Churchill had come home with was not as firm as the one that he had previously in his beloved but redundant Quebec agreement. A further reminder that the glory days of the 40s were gone and that Churchill was cast out from atomic wonderland. Nonetheless, he did enjoy a what must have been a nice little personal triumph over Attlee. During his Washington trip, he had lunch with Senator McMahon, the one who had brought in the hated McMahon Act, the act which severed all nuclear cooperation between America and Britain. Churchill sat down with him and pulled out a copy of, yes, the Quebec Agreement. McMahon read it for the first time and replied... If we had known this, the act would not have been passed. Attlee never said a word. So now Churchill could pin it all on Clem. The breakdown of Anglo-American atomic cooperation, the need now for cash-strapped Britain to spend millions of her own on atomic weapons. It was all the fault of those damn socialists. (laughs) It didn't repair the break, of course. It didn't make the McMahon Act magically disappear. But it must have felt satisfying for Churchill. But if he was feeling chirpy about that, um, others in his party were less optimistic. Quoting here from Kevin Rain's book, Churchill and the Bomb, It was impossible not to be conscious that we are playing second fiddle, wrote Evelyn Shuckborough, Eden's private secretary. Even Churchill's Powerful and emotional declarations of faith in Anglo-American cooperation were regularly cut off by Truman with a Thank you, Prime Minister. We might pass that to be worked out by our advisers. All of which was a little wounding, Shuckborough thought. But he wouldn't catch Churchill worrying over something that was a little wounding. Instead, he entered the House of Commons when he got back home and told everyone of his agreement. Quote from Hansard, I wish, first of all, to draw the attention of the House to the agreement we reached in Washington about the atomic bomb. We reached an agreement about its not being used from the East Anglian bases without British consent. This agreement states, in a formal and public manner, what had already been reached as a verbal understanding 
between the late Prime Minister and President Truman. We felt, however, that it would be an improvement if the position were made public and formal, and I expect that will be the general opinion. A much more important atomic development is now before us. I was not aware until I took office that not only had the socialist government made the atomic bomb as a matter of research, but that they had created, at the expense of many scores of millions of pounds, the important plant necessary for its regular production. This weapon will be tested in the course of the present year by agreement with the Australian government at some suitable place in that continent. So Churchill was already looking ahead to Britain's first nuclear test, despite the strange dragging of feet that he had exhibited earlier when he was trying to deter the prof from growing ahead with it all. It seems that his trip to Washington had perhaps made it clear that he no longer lived in atomic wonderland, and that if Britain wanted the prestige and the clout of having a bomb, she would have to do it herself. And that is what we will look at next week, Britain's preparations for her first atomic test. And that would be a good way, surely, to recover from any (laughs) wounding inflicted by the Americans. Like getting a new haircut and a new job after a breakup. Yeah, I'll show him. I'm not bothered at all. Look how fabulous and busy I am. I don't think about you at all. Now, I've enjoyed these um, deep dives into Britain's path to its first atomic bomb, particularly the involvement of Churchill, of course, Commonly remember Churchill as the wartime Prime Minister, obviously. But he was also, when he came back into Downing Street in 1951, he also became Britain's first nuclear Prime Minister. He was obviously the one in charge when we first actually got the bomb. Clement Attlee might have started all the preparations, but it was Churchill who was in Downing Street when we first exploded a British nuclear bomb. And I will be in Churchill's house later this week. This podcast is going out on Monday the 4th of September. And on the Sunday of this week, I will be at Chartwell, which was Churchill's stately home in Kent. They are holding their first uh, literature festival. And I'm very honoured to say they've asked me to go and speak about my book, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. And let me say hello and welcome to my new patrons who've joined this week. Faye Wilnuff, Amy Wilson, KEB and an increase in his pledge from Andrew Gorton. And thank you to Jonathan Harden for increasing his amount. These guys all have access now to various rewards such as extra podcast episodes. So if you want to get access to those, please consider joining us at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. All the extra episodes are there for you waiting to be downloaded and I'll be adding more all the time. So thank you to my new patrons. Um, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm there at Julie A. McDowell. I'm on Facebook as Nuclear Britain. And you can get my book at all, all the usual places. Uh, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War, by me, Julie McDowell. And if you are nearby Chartwell this coming weekend, I hope to see you at the Literature Festival. <laughs>